0: We are on this series, The Missional Baton, uh, and I know we have received. There's a mixed crowd here, right? Some of you like history, some of you don't. But I want to say this Isaac Newton had a quote If I have seen further than others, it is by standing upon the shoulder of giants. Our church is here today because of those who have come before us. We are inspired by their faith, we learn from their mistakes so we do not repeat it. We see how God worked through difficult situations, and it is on this, we are standing on their shoulders to build our church today. Now, if you are not a history person, and as we go through church history with all these maps, let me give you a tip. Don't worry about the maps, okay? Joel said last week he only had one map. Today I beat him. I have zero maps. Don't be too worried about the facts. Look at one or two faith principles that you can take back and translate to your life. Because more than what we know, it is really how we live. So Father, as we come today, looking at how you have worked in the past, let us be reminded it is not about the plethora of facts, it is your still small voice that penetrates into our heart and teach us how to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now today is our last week, so I thought let me just give a very brief summary of how far we have come. We started with the early church, very, very organic. There was some strategic planning by the apostles choosing which cities to go, but largely it was ordinary people in their ordinary lives. They were scattered because of persecution. They were moving to be with their families. They were doing business. And wherever they moved around, they brought the gospel with them. That's how the early church spread. In the year 300, a big shift happened. Emperor Constantine went into a war. In that battle, he saw a cross in the sky and he thought Jesus was his personal sponsor. Because of Jesus, he won the war. So after that, he institutionalized Christianity. Suddenly, Christians were no longer persecuted. In fact, it was that you had perks for becoming a Christian. So, this changed the environment, the rich and powerful flocked to the church, and the church became very, very wealthy and powerful. It is said at one point, the church owned one-third of the land in Western Europe. See, when there's power and money, what follows Its abuse and excess. They did many things that we would never have imagined. There was a practice called the sale of indulgences. These men, after we sin, the more we pay, the lesser the punishment we would get. They created all these fake relics. They would say, oh, I found the sandal of Peter. I found the shoe of John or the cape. And they claimed that this had miraculous power so people all over would come to visit their church. And in order to sort of keep control, a metaphor would be they locked the Bible to the pulpit. So ordinary people like me and you, we would never have access to Scriptures, so we would never find out, hey, church is not supposed to be like that. Okay, so that's the medieval church. In the 1500s, another shift happened. It's a movement called the Reformation. Now, it's a big word. It simply means people were attempting to correct and reform some of the abuses in the church, okay? Few things that birthed this movement. Number one, in the year 1453, the Ottoman Empire conquered Constantinople. Constantinople. This was where all the religious power was at, and so scholars fled to Western Europe. This is England, France, and all those places carrying original manuscripts with them. It's Greek manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts. Second reason that birthed the Reformation, it was courageous people, people like Martin Luther, people like Huldrych Zwingli. All these guys stood up courageously for the faith. They said, we do not want abuses to continue to happen. Third reason, it's the rise and invention of the printing press. See, before this, without printing, how do you disseminate information? You largely have to copy, right? With the printing press, now scripture could be mass produced and mass distributed. Okay, so these three things basically what it did, it democratized scripture. If Air Asia says now everyone can fly, the Reformation says now everyone can read scripture. Okay. Now, this created a very different kind of a paradigm. It's an amazing thing, right? Every one of us get to read Scripture, but it created a different kind of an environment. See, if you have read Scripture long enough, you would realize it's not as straightforward. There are contexts, there are original language and different things, And sometimes, there's a range of meaning. When everyone gets to read Scripture, it forms different opinions about Scripture. There's a beautiful side and an ugly side to it. The beautiful side is this. When a group of people, they felt they had a new revelation of truth, it would lead to a profound sense of conviction And revivals would just happen. This meant strong emotional responses. This meant the gospel being spread in the community. This meant an increased interest in the things of God and would often lead to a birth of denominations. Denominations simply mean a group of people who share similar beliefs and similar focuses, so to speak. Now, the ugly side is not that there were many denominations. The ugly side was how each denomination related to each other. So when a revival happened, oftentimes who criticized these denominations is not non-church members. It's other Christian groups would put them down criticized them, dismissed them, and it created an environment of really conflict. Now, it is in this kind of an environment that I want to share with us our focus today, the Pentecostal missionary movement. If you see this chart, the Pentecostal movement kind of came from the stream of the Methodists and the Holiness Movement. So, it's John Wesley, Charles Wesley, those people. In John Wesley's teaching, after salvation, there is a second work of grace, okay? And this work of grace, what it does is it sanctifies us and it helps us become holy. As the 1900s approach, people in these circles they thought this second work of grace would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's how they drew these connections. It's not the term as how we use in our Victory Weekend. Baptism of the Spirit to them at that point of time was when I'm baptized, it empowered me and sanctified me to be holy. Hence the term, the holiness movement, okay? So how did, the Pentecostal movement come about. On the 31st December, 1900, the eve of the new century, there's a guy called Charles Parham. Charles Parham is from the holiness stream. He's a, small, he's a teacher in a small Bible school. So he was reading Acts 2, and he kind of put two and two together, and he said, okay, they were filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. Okay, other tongues simply means these were known languages. It's like me, as a Chinese, I suddenly speak Italian, okay? Or an African starts speaking Mandarin. So Charles Parham said, hmm, I think based on this, the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. So that night, 31st December 1900, They held a prayer meeting and they were contending for what happened in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 to happen in their prayer meeting in Kansas, okay? So they're praying, praying, praying. All of a sudden, he claims one of his students called Agnes Orman. She starts speaking in fluent Mandarin and she could not speak English for three days. As she wanted to communicate with them, she starts writing It also became Mandarin. And Charles Baham claimed in that prayer meeting itself, there were 21 languages spoken, verified by native speakers. Now, I want to say this. I know we have a lot of questions. But to them, they saw it at what? As an actual moment. And what they were desiring is that now with these 21 languages, we can go to these different nations and tell them in their own tongues the mighty works of God. So they looked at it as a missional launching pad, okay? So Charles Parham started teaching this. It did not take off. Largely, uh, most people did not believe the Holy Spirit still worked in revelatory ways, which means they did not believe in miracles, they did not believe in healings, tongues, prophetic words, and so on. So it did not pick up until 1906. One of his students called William Seymour, this guy over here, he did not experience what Charles Spaham experienced, okay? He, He simply heard about it. And he was invited to be a pastor in Santa Fe Holiness Church, this is in LA, first sermon, he preaches on speaking in tongues. Immediately, he was kicked out of the church. They said, this was too narrow, we already are baptized, why are you telling about speaking in tongues? And he ended up at this house here on Bonnie Bray Street. It's a few of them that followed his teaching. And William Seymour said, let me, content for what happened in Aksu, what happened to Charles Barham, to happen in our prayer meeting as well. On the 9th April, 1906, suddenly it takes off. So, this is what he said, let me read it to you. William Seymour said, Through me like electric needles, I fell under the power and God began to mold me and teach me what it meant to be really surrendered to Him. Soon I began to stutter and then out came a distinct language which I could hardly restrain. I talked and laughed with joy far into the night. I received the baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire and I felt the presence of God in my heart, my hands, my arm, and all through my body. The prayer meeting here lasted three days and three nights. Too many people came and the house couldn't fit. They moved to this building at the bottom corner in Azusa Street, it's an abandoned building. They set up this crates. they put hay around, and they continued their prayer meeting. People all over came, it was praying, it was speaking in tongues, there were miracles happening, Uh, people going out to exhort, and so on and so forth, and they started sending these newsletters all over the world, and people were responding, hey, this is happening in my nation too. Now, there were a lot of things going on. I know you have a lot of questions. There were many amazing things that happened. There were also some abuses and excess. There were lots of criticisms. The newspaper came out, wow, this weird thing happening in Azusa Street. But there's one thing without question. All of them saw it as a missional moment. They saw it as Acts 1-8. They received the power of the Holy Spirit. And they could be witnesses to the end of the earth. And these people, they were not rich people. They were Middle to lower class, they had no money, they had no support structure, and they said, if I'm given the tongues of Romanian, now I'm supposed to go to Romania. And they would go to the port, buy a one-way ticket, hop on the boat, and go to Romania without any planning. The Pentecostal movement is above all else a missionary movement. I gotta say this, what happened to these people that's three scenarios that play out. So they jump on the boat, they got there. The first scenario is they actually don't know the language or they know just two phrases. The impulse of tongues got them there, but they had to stick it out and learn the language or some of them gave up and went back. The second scenario that happened These are people who really got the language. They went there, started ministering, doing ministry work, and they lost the language after that. And they had to relearn it from scratch. And the third scenario, this is the minority. They were supernaturally given the gift of that language, and they never had to learn the language to minister in that country. Now, this small place... In two years, they had presence in 25 countries. From the U.S., they went all the way, China, India, Japan, South Africa. In 10 years, they were in 50 countries. And if you try to track their growth, it's very difficult. But one of their largest denominations, it's the Assemblies of God, okay? 1940, 300,000 of them. In 1960, it's 3 million 1990, 30 million, 2010 is 60 million people, and 85% of them were in non-Western countries. And I shared all this to show you these people, empowered by the Spirit, took the leap of faith, and they just went everywhere believing that that was their call. So what is our take back today? Three things. First one, the Holy Spirit's role in mission. See, sometimes today in certain church circles we think of church, uh, Holy Spirit as a comforting uh, element in worship, in prayer and all and, and that's true. But there's one role we must not forget. The Holy Spirit's role is for mission. Now, I know we have questions on missionary tongues and all that. Don't worry about that. Let's put that aside. If you start reading Scripture about the Holy Spirit, you start to realize everything is about mission. 1 Corinthians 2, it says that it reveals the things of God to us. See, why are some of us not keen or not excited about reaching the lost? Very simple. We don't love the lost. When the Holy Spirit is invited into our life, We start loving the things of the world less and we start loving the things of the Spirit more, which are the lost people. John 16, we don't go out there with our persuasive words. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts the people we are speaking to. John 15, it's He who testifies about Jesus. And Galatians 5, We can't change anybody. It's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. Do you see the whole process? And I can just go on and on. We are going into a series where we talk about the Holy Spirit. And whatever we talk about, I want you to desire what happened in Acts 2. What happened in Kansas to Charles Parham? What happened to William Seymour? Let us hunger for that, for the Holy Spirit to empower us for missions. What else can we learn? Strength in diversity. Now, I spoke about criticism and disagreement and denominations, all those things. See, one of the most distracting things that can happen to a church that will distract them from missions is internal disunity. I think... One of the best ways to prevent that is to realize none of us have the full picture about God. Our background, our context allows us to see certain things very clearly, but not other things. Jason and I, we study in a seminary which there are 35 nations involved. There are people who minister in East Africa they go into the village, a witch doctor comes out and confronts them and wants to kill them. He will understand God in a very different way from my professor who ministers in Harvard and MIT, hyper-intellectuals, someone who has abundance of resources, will understand God very differently from one of my seniors after his first service, second service, his church got burned down. Some of the Westerners, they minister in very individualistic context. It's very different from us, Asians, who largely minister in a familial context. We need each other. We need people who think different compared to us. See, sitting here, I know some of us, we may come from very different background than every nation. Some of us come from Reformed background. You practice the Spirit very differently. You don't believe in revelatory gifts. I wanna say to you, that's tremendous value in that thinking. This means your main concern is that Scripture is honored. And you are concerned that by practicing give, these gifts, Scripture, there are other thoughts that are added to Scripture. Some of us may come from hyper-charismatic backgrounds. We practice spiritual gifts very different than every nation. And I want to say to you, I see tremendous value in that as well. This means you so hunger for the Holy Spirit to act in the now. But we need each other. See this verse here. Paul says, do not quench the spirit but test everything. How can we do that if we don't have each other? Imagine the reform saying to the charismatic, instead of criticizing them, he says, I honor you and your hunger for the Spirit. I need to learn from that. But I have two, three points that I'm concerned about that I would like you to consider. And the charismatic response, thank you for your thoughts. I so need you to test everything that we do. Sometimes we can be over-enthusiastic. We need your help. And with that strengthening, it helps us to focus on what matters. Last point. With the missionary movement of the 20th century, it shifted the center of Christianity to the south and the east. Before that, 80% of the Christians lived in the Western world. Today, 70% of Christians live in the non-Western world. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria today than in England. There are more Christians worshipping in a persecuted nation like China than the whole of Western Europe. This man, the missional baton, has kind of passed to the south and the east. It's South Africa, it's the Philippines, it's Korea. And in my personal opinion, Malaysia has a role to play. See, I know, I know, I'm a Malaysian. We see so many things negatively. We see our currency dropping and we're like, oh my gosh, will I have enough? We see this political change and we are worried about our future and wealth. I I know that, I, I am like that. But allow me to offer a few more perspectives that you might not have considered. We own the 12 strongest passport in the world. This means we can walk into certain countries without a visa. We have access to certain countries where many others would not have. Now this is a controversial statistic. It's a research done by a guy in Oxford and he was trying to compare living standards across nations, it's very difficult. So he took a few points, it's the Gini index, it's the distribution of wealth, he considered purchasing power parity, he considered GDP, he considered exchange rates, and according to him, if you earn 3,000 ringgit a month as a fresh graduate today, you are wealthier than 93.5% of the global population. Now, I, don't, I know most of you don't believe me. Just Google median income, global median income. You would find 50% of the world's households earn less than 1,000 ringgit a month. Yes, we are economically challenged, but 93.5% of the world are worse off than us. We are multilingual. We don't need The missionary tongues, some of us know Mandarin, we would be very effective in China. Some of us know Tamil, we would be very effective in India. These are two of the world's largest populations in the world. The baton has passed to Malaysia. The only question, it's whether we are going to take it personally and say, I Personally, I, Eugene, am going to take hold of the baton. Now we're going to end today by playing a prophetic video from Pastor Jim LaFoon. He prophesied here, I think 2019 or something. And I want you to see it with a different lens. I want you to see it through the lens of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see it with the lens of mission. It was as if he was passing the baton to Malaysia. We're gonna watch a video, and then we'll come back and respond to it. Let's play the video.
1: All right, Holy Spirit, we thank you you're with us. We thank you for the nation of Malaysia. We thank you, Lord, there's a new day for the church in Malaysia. Lord, a new day here for Eagle Point Church. Thankful for what you're doing. Uh, Timothy Teresa even says the Lord as you walked on the stage, this church and you are walking into a new period of time. It's true there's been opposition. But this opposition, says the Lord, that you felt spiritually, things you've all felt, will create opportunity. And this church is coming into the greatest opportunity of harvest you've ever known. In fact, there will be unexpected outbreaks of my spirit and and, and evangelism in every place you cannot imagine. In fact, says the Lord, people you've written off, things you've written off, things you said would never happen, they're going to happen. And you're going to come into an unusual six-year season of growth. There will be more properties. There will be more opportunities. And this church will grow and grow and grow. And I'm dealing, says the Lord, even with the very DNA of the church. I'm working on things. I'm deepening your faith. And I want you to know you are coming into an unusual time of outreach, into an unusual time of outbreak. And I am going to break loose in this city in ways that if I were to describe them to you, you would not know what to do. And this outbreak that will come, says the Lord, will be geographical because there'll be new opportunities, there'll be new church planting, there'll be new buildings, but it'll be human as well. People you've written off in your own families, you'll see them saved. People and co-workers you thought, well, they'll never be saved. I should never even talk to them. By my spirit, I'm going to do something. And there'll be interesting shaking and shifting in the nation as well for I will stabilize things, but there will be like an unusual growth opportunity that will come to the nation. In fact, it will like capture the nation. Like they'll just say, this is our real chance to build our economy. And there will be like an exciting two years where people say we've just never seen this opportunity before. For it's as if out of the ground it will come forth. And there'll be great excitement for two years to 27 months, but it will be like an economic slippery slope. And there will be a grasping and there will be an extension. And some will say, you're just extending too fast. That's not even fully done. But you're not to be afraid, for what is fast will feel like last, but I will sweep down and turn the nation again when this happens. And you're to know by my spirit and by my power, I am at work. There are even Nicodemuses even now by night searching and seeking. There are even Sauls sitting blind three days just waiting. And you are no, you're not to be afraid of sudden opposition. You're not to be afraid of sudden storms that come up in your business or your health or your life or your nations. Strange economic regulation that comes out of nowhere for an old voice re-empowered. For you to know, in the middle of every opposition, there is divine opportunity. Watch me, says the Lord, for I'm breaking out. Watch me, says the Lord, for there's an outbreak of my spirit that is rippling through this nation, rippling even through universities, rippling even through professors. Watch me, says the Lord. Let's give God a great clap. Well, all righty.
0: Someone just texted me and said, wow, just amazing hearing this prophecy again. I, I, I don't know where we are. Are we in fourth year, fifth year? I really don't know. But I captured three things. It says, watch me. See, God is going to work regardless if we participate. But I'm telling myself, I want to participate and be part of it. He says, outbreak of the Spirit. So excited to see that happen. And it says, divine opportunity. For the harvest, we're gonna enter into a time of worship, and I want you to respond to God wherever you are at. Some of you may be saying, "Man, I really wanna participate, but I have some concerts." Tell it to the Lord. Some of you, you remember, you were so excited before when you heard this, but it has kind of gotten cold. You tell the Lord to rekindle that conviction. Some of you, it's your first time, you're hearing this and you say, wow, I wanna see this outbreak of spirit. Wherever you are at, it's between you and God. So Father, we come before you today. Thank you for being living and active in our world today. There are many things we don't know, but we know You are sovereign, you are powerful, and you love all the people around us. Help us to see things like you see.